So our, our next um, speaker, I'm, 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 you know, it's a cliche, but I'll say it anyway, needs no introduction. Um, if you were confused about what he might be speaking about, I think it says it in the name of the talk. <laughs> Imperialism suffocates humanity like a boa constrictor. So uh, without further ado, put thanks. your hands together yeah. for Vijay Prashant. Okay, thanks a lot. No, I, I think this works. Okay. Okay, if you, thanks a lot. Before I begin, would you mind standing up, please? If you can. If you can. Okay. I'm going to teach you a few things. For instance, I want to first teach you the word Zindabad. Can you say the word Zindabad? Zindabad. Zindabad means long live. So say it again, Zindabad. I'm going to say a word and then you say but not like that. I'm going to say something and you say? Zindabad. Yes. Inkilab. Inkilab. Left block. Zindabad. Left block. Inkilab. Inkilab. Queen Elizabeth. Zindabad. That's one that has to leave the room. <laughs> sit down. Sit down. Sit down. <laughs> 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 Thanks a lot for uh, inviting me to join you at the uh, Scoli Shows Clay. Uh, really happy to be here. Political education is so fundamentally important for our movement because um, if we don't understand what's happening in the world together, if we don't build power in ideas together, we are not going to be able to build a movement. One of the problems that we often find in our movements is that because we don't teach each other what we're doing, why we're doing it, people get demoralized. Because our struggles are difficult. Organizing is a very difficult task. It's boring. Earlier Sarah was talking about how difficult it is you know, to bring people together in a way because there are so many divides, divides of gender, divides of race, divides of nationality, divides of language. It takes so much to befriend people and many of our comrades are not the best kind of people, may not want to even spend time with them. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, if we have a common purpose that we understand, if all of us understand it, that gives us a certain kind of strength and vitality. And we get that purpose in struggle, but also through the reflective work of political education. So building this school is essential. And I'm really happy to be here uh, with all of you. I'm not going to take much time. The best way to begin a talk is to say, I'll be brief. Uh, many years ago, I was in a happy occasion of in Havana watching Fidel Castro speak. And one of the greatest things about Fidel Castro is he neither said, I shall be brief, or I'm going to sum up soon, or I'm just one more point. He just spoke for four hours. And he was unembarrassed. And interestingly, the bourgeoisie always says, you know, it's arrogant, whatever, four hours. What they don't understand is, if you have the privilege of class, and you go to university, you go for a three-hour seminar, the teacher talks for three hours, nobody gives a shit about that, they think it's normal. Fidel was our teacher. Fidel digested an enormous amount of material. People came for those lectures. Fidel taught how to understand the conjuncture. People were riveted because they didn't have the 
opportunity of a university seminar. I once saw some comrades, not in Cuba, in another place, unnamed place, three days of long meeting. Comrades came eager to learn because we don't have the opportunity, everybody, of having that kind of education. So, I'm not saying I'm going to take four hours, okay, because I know earlier there was all this talk of people are eager to go to the pub and so on. That's okay. In fact, you can go now. It's fine. <laughs> You're not under any compulsion from me. There's no, <laughs> no reason to stay. But I'm going to just share with you some ideas. And in the end, I want to talk to you a little bit about a project I've been involved in in the last six years. In fact, I've come here to proselytize. So just bear with me, okay? But let me build up to that. But I'm giving you fair warning uh, that all the build up is just leading to the ask. Okay, uh, so there's that. <laughs> You're familiar with that, are you not? Uh, when you speak in a picket or you speak in a union meeting, there's always the ending. Everybody knows it's coming. You must have learned that from your experience in the clerical world, where the whole thing ends with the buckets of money, you know. It's the bottom line, really. Is Everybody's sort of waiting for the bucket so you can go to the pub, you know. <laughs> so this is a similar experience. So relax. <laughs> I'll eventually get to the bucket. So that's coming. So we'll have that. Well, it's, you know, obvious to you that there are many crises. I mean, we sit down and we are people of the left. And the word crisis is so key to Marxism and the communist movement. And, you know, unlike you, my dear, I've been a member of a communist party for 35 fucking years and not 11 months. And I couldn't bear not to be a member of a party because it disciplines me. It keeps me close to where the class is. And I need to be where the class is because so easy to get distracted, you know, by other things. And I need somebody to tell me that, no, we're here now. And you've got to be told that sometimes because the virus of individualism is horrible. However bright you are and whatever you may know, you can drift away from where other people are collectively building something. So, so important for me. But listen, I know in our tradition, crisis this, crisis that. It's as if the world is going to, what, what did they say? They always say, somebody said in London at the Glasgow thing, somebody said that the person from the Green Party said, this is our last chance. There's a crisis. We're going to all die. People on the left have been saying this for hundreds of years. Capitalism is going to collapse. We're going to seize the day. And I'm not going to start by saying, well, now we're in a crisis. This is the final crisis. That's nonsense. Capitalism is a crisis. Capitalism is itself a crisis. It's a self-generating crisis. It's a machine that accumulates capital, but it itself is a crisis. There have been crises in capitalism ever since capitalism established itself as a world system. You can go back to the 19th century and you can track the crises in that time country by country. Eventually when capital globalizes, there are crises that are international. And they say, well, there was that crisis. There was no that crisis. There was no financial crisis. There was no depression. Capitalism is a depression. For most people, it's a permanent depression. What depression are you talking about in the 1930s? What depression? That was a depression for the capitalists. For the working class, capitalism is a permanent depression. Capitalism is a permanent crisis. I read a report recently from the United Nations Human Development 
uh, you know, their Human Development Index report just came out this week. I, of course, read all these reports. It's incredible. Sit down and go through the PDF, and I almost read all the words in them. Uh, because you learn interesting things. This report was fascinating because it said for two consecutive years, first time in 32 years of reporting this human development data, for two consecutive years, there's been a decline in human development indices around the world. 90% of the countries in the world have seen a catastrophic decline. Now, we all know that. I mean, you don't really need the UN to tell us that. People know that in their lives. But the interesting thing is the explanation. So they say it's because of COVID-19, the pandemic, okay, and the war in Ukraine. Interesting. Okay. That's the explanation. Now, I remembered and I went back and I found the PDF. About three months ago, the UN released another report on human security in which they had a chilling statistic. The UN said that those people surveyed on the planet, and this is a pretty comprehensive global survey, Six out of seven people in 2019, before the pandemic, six out of seven people reported that they felt insecure. Okay, six out of seven people reported they felt insecure before the pandemic, which might I remind you, is before the war in Ukraine. So it's interesting that their analysis then suggests that the whole collapse in their opinion, the present crisis is because of the pandemic and because of the war in Ukraine. There's no mention of capitalism and the fact that capitalism itself is a crisis. No mention of that. No mention of declining rates of profit. No mention of financialization. No mention of the commodification of everything. No mention of the fact that this so-called precarious work is not really work. It's not like the word precarious makes it even seem nice somehow because it's actually quite a lovely word. Precarious. It's not precarious. It's a shit job. It's shit work. It's not precarious. Precarious is too refined a word for it. It's shit work. And it's becoming increasingly dominant in countries which didn't have it before. In the 1980s, there was a survey done in India of work. An Arjun Sengupta report showed that in the 1980s, 93% of Indian workers worked in the informal sector. And let me tell you, if you look carefully at the jobs in that report, it was precarious work. That means that now the global north countries are beginning to catch up with the shit jobs that have been taking place in most of the south. So a lot of this opening up of areas of labor, you know, delivery, of things. It's been happening in India for decades. It's been happening in India for decades. Um, gone are the days when you sent your kid to the corner store to buy beer, like my dad used to send me. You know, in those days, in the 1970s, nobody checked the ID. And besides a kid, you know, you know it's for an adult. Or so they, <laughs> so they thought. Eight-year-old kid, I'll take two big bottles of Kalyani Brewery. And you take it back. Well, now you don't send your kids. Earlier, Sarah talked about something about, that was a nice phrase, uh, the internet of things your mama won't do for you. Well, it's also internet of things you don't make your children do for you because your children <laughs> are on their fucking phones. So you have to call in, you know, get some delivery kit to bring the beer in and whatever. This has been happening in the South for 
at least two or three decades. It's been happening a long time ago. We don't think about it. Now there's a crisis of cost of living. A lot of talk about the cost of living crisis. In most of the South, there's a living crisis. It's not a cost of living crisis. People are not sure they'll be alive anymore. They'll think that death is tomorrow. You know, when you look at Pakistan, these floods in Pakistan, 33 million affected and so on. 33 million affected is not the correct number. 200 million Pakistanis are affected. 200 million Pakistanis are affected. There's no relief anywhere except the Kisan Mazdoor party and some people are bringing in food to people who are living on highways which have been colonized by people without homes any longer. Hardest hit areas are Baluchistan and Sindh, the provinces where there are anyway insurgencies and all kinds of million problems taking place. Imagine 200 million people disposable in this planet, completely irrelevant. I've started thinking about an idea, the international division of humanity. Because really, let's face it, we live with that. Uh, Let's take the Ukraine war. February, Russian troops enter Ukraine. All of Facebook is colonized by Ukrainian flags. And you know, that really pissed me off. That pissed me off because I reported the war in Iraq. I reported the war in Syria. I reported the war in Libya. I was in Libya during that war. And none of the fucking people who put Ukrainian flags know what the colors of any of these flags are like. What's the Yemeni flag look like? If I ask you, what does the Yemeni flag look like? How many of you know what Yemen's flag looks like? Probably one or two who are very focused on these things. But most likely nobody. The West doesn't give a shit about people who live in places like Iraq or Iran or Libya or the Congo or Mozambique. Do you know, for instance, that in northern Mozambique, and and I want to tell this story because it brings me back to Glasgow. In northern Mozambique, in Cabo Delgado province, an insurgency began because Exxon Mobil and Total, the French company, had made a discovery of natural gas off the coast of Mozambique, the second largest discovery off the coast of, of Africa. Exxon and Total were extracting natural gas, a lot of investment and so on. Insurgency develops people in Cabo Delgado, the poorest province in Mozambique, said we're getting nothing from this. So an insurgency begins. I went to report this insurgency, found it very interesting. They called themselves Al-Shabaab, which is an interesting name because Al-Shabaab means the youth. It's a youth movement. But because it's in Arabic, it sounds like a terrorist organization. So immediately the reporting started that it's terrorists. Now what did the leadership of Al-Shabaab do? They affiliated with ISIS. They affiliated with ISIS. Because they were getting hit as terrorists, they needed arms and so on. They were not a terrorist organization. In fact, they were ex-Mozambican military and ex-Mozambican police, the ones who took up arms. Because they knew how to use guns. Others didn't. And then what happens? The French come in and say, we need to crash them. Why do the French need to crash these young kids, many of them, some older? Why? Because of the investments of French Total and of ExxonMobil. But French didn't want to directly intervene. You've been reading recently, maybe you haven't seen this. In the Sahel region of Africa, the French have been getting politically clobbered. They They were expelled this year from Mali. The dictatorship removed the French, said get the French troops out. I don't know if you you follow this, but France invaded Mali in 2013 in Operation Barkhane. 
Well, they have been thrown out of Mali. They were skittish. Macron was not keen. It was an election year. He was not keen on sending French troops to Mozambique. So what did they do? They got Rwanda to send Rwandan troops into Mozambique on behalf of France. And for that, France apologized for its role in the genocide in Rwanda. That was the price that the Rwandans extracted from the French. And nobody said a damn thing about the people of Mozambique because they don't exist. They are on the other side of the international division of humanity. There are Ukrainians and then there are the other people who deserve to be bombed. And I'm serious about that. There are the other people who deserve to be bombed. It's good to bomb them. In fact, it's educational. The first aerial bombardment in the world took place in in Libya in 1911. It was the Italians who pioneered aerial bombardment. I remember being in Libya in 2011, the 100th anniversary of the first aerial bombardment in the world. It was done in Libya in 1911 and the West returns 100 years later to say, we're back. We're back. Now, what's interesting about the 1911 bombing is the futurists. You may not know about the They were all in. They thought it was great. And the texts that were written by the futurists and some of these early fascists, they wrote directly that these Arabs need to be educated. And the way to educate them is to bomb them. Because if you, you know, it's a little bit like if you're having a heart attack, you may or may not have seen this, right? They bring that machine and they shock you and that shocks your heart back to life. Well, the futurists sort of thought bombing was a little bit like that. You take a bomb and you drop it on some Arabs and they get shocked into modernity because they're such savage beasts that they're suddenly shocked. Wow, it's like a flash of light from an alien ship. And they're, wow, we were savages. But now we're born. It's evangelism from the skies. Some people will die, but that's an acceptable amount of death. You can tolerate that. One part of the international division of humanity is this, the death. It's acceptable for them. When the Union Carbide Factory exploded in Bhopal, India in 1984, I was a young person, super ignorant person, not interested in reading very much interested in drugs and sports. Not yet. I mean, I entered the communist movement without reading any books. I entered the communist movement because I wanted to demonstrate against the state. And Union Carbide Factory was a key moment. Factory exploded. 3,000 people died almost on, in one night. The head of American Sinamid, a major chemical country, said, well, you know, it's terrible what happened, except that Indians have a different standard of life. Because fucking Indians, you know, they'll die, they get reborn. So what do you care when Indians die? And besides, they have 20 kids. 10 of them die, they don't miss them. They have 10. They have a different standard of life. He wrote this, he said this to a New York Times reporter. This was quoted in the New York Times. There was no comment. Because it was utterly acceptable in 1984 and in 2022 that people over there die. What does it matter? They're not white. What does it matter? They're not white. What does it matter? A child dies in India. It's different. They expect their children to die. A child dies in the West. It's a horrible thing. It's a super tragedy. Remember when that Ukrainian official said, it's unacceptable. These people are blonde and they have blue eyes. That clip went completely viral in the South. The rage against the way this war is going is not turned on Russia. Let me tell you, in Africa, 
in Asia and Latin America, people are disappointed and angry with the reaction of the West. It's not about NATO and geopolitics. and that, That's not there. People aren't thinking about, you know, NATO expansion. No, it's not that. People are pissed off. Because when you bomb us, you think it's fine. But when you have your own refugees, then you're outraged. Then Poland, Germany, open arms to refugees. You come and destroy Syria, no Syrians allowed. You can drown in the Mediterranean, but you can't come here. We can bomb you, but you can't come and be my neighbor. You bomb me and make me run to you and then you put up a gate. That's who you are. That's what people thought when they saw the Ukraine war. They were not thinking about geopolitics and, you know, Kiev and Mariupol and Crimea. And nobody knows the names of any of these places, frankly. But they were just remembering that. And also, as many people in South Africa told me, they still think of the fact that when they were fighting their liberation wars, the Russians helped them. That's still there in people's heads. I met a commander in the sphere of the nation in South Africa who said, you know, I trained in Odessa. I trained in the Soviet Union in Odessa. I have a memory. I know Ukraine. Blah, blah, blah. Those nostalgias exist, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is, when we die, you don't care. Now, imperialism is not about war, guys. Imperialism is about maintaining low wages and low royalty payments in most parts of the world. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. And I don't want to get into a big theory of what is imperialism. We can talk about that if you'd like. Haiti, okay? One of the great revolutions of human history. The Haitian revolution. The Haitian enslaved people took the words of the French revolution seriously. Liberty, equality, fraternity. Words the French don't even understand. You know, the French have forgotten their own Revolution. I mean, look at their politics. It's, a biz- it's hard to understand France today. It's really hard. You've got Macron. What is this? It's like the Dauphin, you know. I mean, what kind of character is this? What politics do these people have? Where is the left in France? We are always excited, Melanchon, Melanchon. But what party is there? You can't have a formulation around a person. Where are the parties? Where are the Republican ideals? Blah, blah. It's all a mess. But the Haitians took it seriously. They overthrew the slave owners. Incredible revolution. The first proletarian revolution in world history. Because those plantations were factories. Those were, this was not some feudal slave rebellion. This was a proletarian uprising. They created a workers' state, whether deformed or not. <laughs> whether deformed or not. It was a workers' state. But the French wouldn't have it. You know this history? French demanded that the slave owners get paid for the loss of their property. Did you know this? And that payment took place right into the 20th century. Chase Manhattan Bank bought the debt that France was holding and then extracted the indemnity from Haiti right into the post-Second World War period. Haiti was forced to pay the slave owners... (laughs) For liberating themselves. The bloody British government was paying descendants of British slave owners in Jamaica right up to 2010. Did you know that? David bloody Cameron's government was I think the last to cut the check to the 
what the hell? You talk about decolonization. <laughs> it's a joke. I was once in an academic place and they were going on and on about decolonial thought. I had no idea what they were talking about. It was super over my head. And I kept thinking, decolonial thought? What about the colonial structures that exist? You're talking about we need to get it out of our heads. The structures are still there. It's not just in the mind. They're still paying an indemnity. Well, Haitian people. By the way, Jean-Bertrand Aristide should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. He's the only head of government to be twice cooed by the United States. He suffered two coups. The same guy. It's never happened. He's like a hero of mine. Just for that, the Yanks got him twice. After Aristide was removed the second time, a wretchedly right-wing Haitian parliament decided to lift the minimum wage of their essentially maquiladora workers, workers who stitch sweatshirts for U.S. colleges, which say Harvard and Cornell. They are mostly stitched in places like Haiti. These workers were getting one or two U.S. cents per shirt, sweatshirt, which retails at like 50 U.S. dollars. They were getting one or two cents. So they lifted the minimum wage in Haiti. Well, you want to know what is imperialism? I meet lots of people, you know, various kinds saying, well, you know, this is a thing of the past, imperialism. It doesn't exist, you know, it's, it's so anachronistic and why do you talk like that and, you know, why don't you get up to the times and, you know, I, I once had a conversation with David Harvey who was saying, well, you know, there's more investment coming from the south to the north and I was like, wow. You're a Marxist. You're like the main interpreter of Marx for so many young people. You go around saying there's no imperialism. You know what happened to those Haitian workers? The Haitian parliament, wretchedly right-wing parliament decides we're going to lift the minimum wage. Barack Obama is the president. Barack Obama, the great hope of the world. Mr. Drone Man. (laughs) Barack Obama, his secretary of state is Hillary Clinton. Oh, the great, you know, Hillary Clinton would have been the first woman president in the United States and so on. Hillary Clinton sends her ambassador to the Haitian parliament and they lobbied them to kill that bill. The United States government killed a bill in Haiti that would have given workers who were making one or two cents per sweatshirt, three or four cents per sweatshirt, which retails at 50 US dollars. In Bolivia... The government of mass movement to socialism starts to do something interesting. They say, we have lithium in our country. Now, we don't want to follow what happened to our silver previously under the conquistadors, the Spaniards. We want to find a way to process our own uh, lithium. I just was in the Atacama Desert in Chile doing a series of stories on lithium processing in Chile. So interesting because in Chile... The company that owns a lot of the lithium is owned by the son-in-law of General Augusto Pinochet. So that's the scene in Chile. Welcome to the transition out of dictatorship. You can get rid of the dictator, but they still have a grip on the money. They have a grip. The capitalist class is incredible. When the tide comes, they duck their heads, they hold their breath, the water subsides and they stand up. And the rest of us think, oh, that tide just wiped them all away. They're still around. They don't go anywhere. Capital is incredibly resilient. So, in Bolivia, the government of Evo Morales, uh, the mass government, 
decides we're going to go essentially from lithium in the ground to electric car. And they built an electric car just a few months before he was cooled. The electric car factory opened and it's a little bit like a golf cart. He drove it out of the factory gates. It's an amazing day. You know, Bolivia, a wretchedly poor country, was able to process the lithium. Well, who was helping them? Now it gets really dangerous. Because to do this, they needed a lot of capital and a lot of expertise. And of course, who was available for all this? China. Wow. Now comes the hard part of my talk today. Uh, China. The hard part of my talk today, because every time I talk like this, I get accused of being on the pay of Xi Jinping. Um, because in the West, anytime you say anything positive about China, you must be saying it because you're paid by them. Because you can't have a brain of your own and do an analysis of your own. You're either an agent of Xi or Putin or somebody. If I'm an agent of anybody, guys, I'm an agent of the Cuban government. Far easier, far easier for me to, it's, it's easier for me to cop to that, okay? It's much easier for me to cop to that. Um, the Chinese come and invest in it, and then the U.S. ambassador and others put pressure on Morales' government. They don't want to back down. There's a coup. Now, I remember this coup very well. This coup takes place, and people said, well, it had nothing to do with lithium. It had to do with that Evo Morales was in power for too long. Now, it's interesting. Evo Morales, one of the first indigenous presidents in South America, also drove an impressive climate agenda. Now, I know there was a dispute over a road built through the Amazon and so on. But the Cochabamba process that they started on climate is extraordinary. And you should go back and read it. In fact, you know, it's not, bless her heart, Greta Thunberg and others that raised this to the global platform. And I think, you know, it's incredible what this young woman has done. But the process has been going on in these indigenous communities for a very long time. And it came together at Cochabamba in that process set in motion 2010. He's been around too long. I remember listening to that thinking, wow, that's amazing. Nobody ever said that about the government in Germany. You know, Angela Merkel was the chancellor longer than Evo Morales. Nobody said she's been around too long. In fact, now I'm thinking, please bring her back. Because this guy is a moron. And the German Greens are far to the right of anybody. I mean, it's a total disgrace of a political party. The German Green guy is the head of climate and environment. And they're going to open coal plants in Germany. I'm excited to see what they do at Sharm el-Sheikh. Let them this time come and tell the Indians and Chinese to stop using coal. Soon in Germany, they're going to be burning the black forest, using charcoal in their homes, because they are so obdurate unwilling to negotiate with somebody they believe is not to be negotiated with. I'll come back to that in a second. But they could, the government in Bolivia, and people said, well, you know, they deserved it. It was incredible. I mean, the entire Western press, basically, you know, including that shit newspaper in London called The Guardian, all of them lined up behind the idea that Evo Morales has been there too long, or that there was some electoral malpractice in the election. By the way, Morales had been elected a few years before and that term was to end in January 2020. He was couped in October 2019. Not one liberal constitutionalist said, okay, he didn't win the election, let him finish his term till January 2020. They said, let him go now. And in fact, he was fearful for his life then. He was fearful and comrades in mass were killed in 2019 and 2020. That's imperialism. Give me another explanation. 
why the United States needs to conduct a coup in a country where there's legitimate elections. Give me an explanation why the Washington Post, the day that Chile was having the vote on the Constitution, why the Washington Post editorial starts with the word lithium. The first word in the editorial is lithium. It's not democracy. The Washington Post editorial was against the new constitution because the new constitution would have given the Chilean people some modest control over their resources. So the first word, this is what we used to call naked imperialism. And yet people say it doesn't exist. Or they say there are competing imperialisms. I'll come back to that in a minute. We have an international division of humanity. Some people, it's acceptable to smash them and say we're smashing them in the name of democracy. Some people, you can bomb and say we're bombing you in the name of democracy. These people, their actual dignity is irrelevant. You can strangle Cuba for decades on end. Cuba, which is basically in the last period, only exported health care only exported solidarity, you continue to insist that it's an exporter of terrorism. And actually, they are honest. Because in fact, the ruling class in many of these imperialist countries, I think they think that giving healthcare to people is terrorism. Because they don't do it to their own populations. So when Cuba sends doctors overseas, they say this is a disgrace. They are treating their doctors like slaves. I find this very interesting. You know, what interests me about this, one of the most underpaid workforces in the world is, is the United States infantry. These people are not paid anything. And their bodies are damaged in warfare and they return back to their country and their healthcare system for veterans is a mess. They are highly underpaid workforce, but they are not treated as slaves. It's Cuban doctors who are the U.S. government says when they go abroad, they are underpaid. I've interviewed hundreds of Cuban doctors. And okay, few of them say that, you know, we miss our children. And obviously, they miss their children. Everybody miss, you know, you miss your children. That's a normal thing when you go on service somewhere. They say critical things. I wish I could go back for holiday. Of course, they wish they could go back for holiday. We all do. Those are normal things. Those are hardly things to extract and exaggerate. But by and large, they are so happy to be doing what they're doing. During the COVID pandemic, I interviewed a bunch of young women who were working in mostly the Caribbean. There was one woman, Jani, who was in Belize. She was in a hot ward, COVID hot ward, Cuban doctor. She had a young child in Oriente, in Cuba, that she would occasionally uh, go on WhatsApp with. Now remember, Zoom embargoes Cuba. So Zoom does not allow connections to Cuba. In fact, it's interesting, they say Cuba bans the internet. No, it's the other way around. The United States blockades internet use for Cuba. So you, if you make a Zoom meeting, Cubans can't join. I don't know if everybody's aware of this. It's a disgrace that a platform that should be in the commons, should be owned by the United Nations, because this is basically a democratic space for us. We allow it to be owned by a flipping private company that follows instructions from the U.S. State Department and embargoes Cuba. It's ridiculous. We just let it go. You know, it happens. Anyway, Johnny would was telling me she talks to a kid, young girl, four or five years old in Oriente. She was going to be there for almost two years. And she said, there is no other place I would 
like to be. I am doing what the commandante had told us to do in the Henry Reeve Brigade when it was set up uh, some years ago. She said, I am proud to be here in Belize. In Belize. Belize is not a socialist country. In fact, Belize often votes in ways that are contrary to Cuba's interests. But Cuba doesn't give a shit about that. Cuban doctors give solidarity to anybody. But they become exporters of terrorism. They become exporters of terrorism. The United States is not an exporter of terrorism. Very happy when Noam Chomsky made that statement. When he said that the biggest terrorist purveyor of terrorism in the world is the United States government. Biggest purveyor. In what way? By preventing Haitian workers from getting a dignified wage. That's terrorism. Blocking climate negotiations. That's terrorism. That's serious terrorism because they want to destroy the planet. By withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Missile Treaty in 2019 unilaterally. That's terrorism. And that withdrawal is what really disturbed the Russians. We're not going to get too much into that. I want to pivot a little bit to explain where there are some signs of the, let's call them complexities in the world today. This is the section where I'm talking about China and Russia. There are some complexities now. And then later I'll talk about the socialist project. But I think we can't talk about the socialist project, comrades, if we don't deal with this. Because this is the elephant. That if comrades don't know how to talk about this, the others is just idealism. Then we'll just say, let's go out and, you know, build the working class movement. Got to deal with this. You remember in old party classes, the first day was always, what's the state of the world today? What are the balance of forces? You know, the camp, I, when I joined, the Soviet Union was still there. Is the camp of peace enlarging? The camp of war and the camp of peace. And we were taught to understand these things and the forces the big forces, the smaller forces, the state of the class struggle. That's how I got political education. You know, we learned the levels of analysis. I remember going to college and being told all of that was abysmal thinking. You know, you don't, you should not think of levels. You should not think of concrete analyses. You, you should not think of all this stuff. And I thought, my God, I'm shaped like that. I won't last in those spaces, you know. We are taught to think like that. So this section, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Maybe it's a little old-fashioned for some of you. In 2007, there was that great financial crisis, you'll remember. Uh, 07, 08, 09. It was a long period of distress. Uh, U.S. housing markets began to feel vulnerable in 07, 08. And then the two big banks collapsed in, in New York, Bear Stearns and uh, Lehman Brothers, and then AIC, the insurance company, and so on. And then the wave hit Europe, and European Central Bank said, we can't do anything, so the U.S. had to bail the Europeans out, etc., etc. Two interesting dynamics take place here. Number one, in China, there's a serious debate about what's happening in the West. A serious debate opens up. At the time, the Chinese government was sort of right of center. Um, it's going to change soon, and I'll tell you about that change. But it was a little more conservative. Um, the head of the economics department in the IMF, Raghunath Rajan, who later becomes the head of the Reserve Bank of India, he said that United States and China are in a satanic embrace because China produces goods, 
and lends the American worker money because U.S. wages have been stagnant for a long time and the U.S. worker then gets that money in credit and buys Chinese goods. And they buy more Chinese goods and the Chinese get more surplus. So essentially China was recycling its economic surplus to the American working class so it could buy buckets and, you know, more things, computers and etc. So in a sense, the boom in the U.S. economy was a false boom because it was financed, underpinned by the Chinese working class and the Chinese national surplus. So he said, this is a satanic embrace. After that collapse, in China, there was a really serious discussion. Like, if the United States collapses, we are going to go down. So we have to pivot away from the U.S. market. So they start having seminars and discussions about how to use their surplus in a different way. Two broad strategies were put on the table. Number one, well, maybe now we should think about improving the conditions of life of particularly people in China outside the Pacific seaboard. So you may know the name Boshi Lai, who later gets caught up in a scandal. Boshi Lai in Chongqing starts the red experiment in Chongqing. They start doing various kinds of social transfer payment schemes, you know, improving public transportation and so on. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but the point was move away from the seaboard, from, you know, essentially the northern cities down to Shanghai and take care of the interior, including Hubei province, uh, you know, Wuhan, which becomes famous later, Xinjiang becomes famous later, Tibet and so on. So the Chinese start a massive scheme there on two legs. Number one, eradicate absolute poverty, which they achieved last year. It's an incredible feat. I mean, coming from India, it is incredible to look north and see that the Chinese have eradicated absolute poverty because there's about 500 million people in India who live essentially between hunger and chronic hunger every day. So seeing what the Chinese have done is incredible. you know. And when people say, well, but it's authoritarian... Tell that to somebody starving on the streets of Mumbai. They'll be interested in your liberal argument. Very interested in hearing you debate about democracy um, as they die in the gutter, their toes being eaten by rats and so on. They have elephantitis. Tell them about that. They would love to hear you uh, lecture them about forms of representative democracy and so on because they live in you know the world's largest democracy except that they can't live because they're dying. So you tell them that. They'll be really interested in that conversation. Um, so one thing they do is they eradicate absolute poverty. Incredible. Secondly, they try to integrate the provinces outside. Mechanization of cotton agriculture in Xinjiang. This is really interesting that Xinjiang becomes the focal point of criticism. I'm not going to get into that. If you want to ask questions, we can talk about that. I've never been to Xinjiang. Been to China a lot. Been to different parts of China. Don't know Xinjiang at all. So I can't speak about things that I don't know about, but I'm happy to engage with you on that if you'd like. Anyway, the second form, when they went out to the outer provinces, was not to do individual transfer payments. It's key to what the Chinese project is. Just handing money out to individuals, no good. You saw what the ex-fighters in Colombia did. They were handed money in the deal, and they collectivized the money and created a cooperative. Because being given a check for yourself is meaningless. If I got a check, I'd go and drink it. You know, but if I was able to sit with 20 people, we discipline our money together. It's not just about making better use of the money, but also discipline. You know, you give a person who's never had money, money, they're going to buy things. Okay, it's automatic. You're going to buy a car. You'll buy things which will depreciate immediately. 
But if you can discipline each other with the transfer payments that you get, you together can produce something effective. That's what a cooperative is. A cooperative is a form of disciplining us into using our money responsibly. That's how I understand cooperative work. That's what they understood. So rather than just give transfer payments as individual cash payments, which capitalism actually encourages so that you consume more, you buy more shit for yourself, go into debt, get new habits of consumption. Once the transfer payments end, you start taking credit and then that cycle goes. It's a crazy, ridiculous trap for people. It increases their consumption needs and then they can't go back to the old forms of consumption. That's what individual transfer payments do. This is different. So improving things like public transport and then making public transport virtually without tickets. You know, it's an incredible thing that we as a society pay for trains and then we expect us to buy tickets to board the train. Like that's my train. When I go to my private car, I don't pay my car to get in the car and drive it. I just get in the damn car and drive it. It's my car. But the train somehow is somebody else's train. Why can't I just board the damn train? Okay, I understand RMT comrades are worried because this means that all the ticket collectors will lose their jobs. Uh, but, you know, we'll find better jobs, different jobs and so on. You know, as Sarah was saying, some of these jobs that we want to protect are not the best jobs, you know. Although ticket collecting is not a bad job. You engage people a little bit and so on. Yeah, but imagine that we can just board a train or board a plane even. You know, what's the need? Uh, maybe we can have different forms of thinking about all kinds of public goods. You know, free healthcare, free public education, etc. See, these things are slightly experienced in the West, but in the South, they are not experienced at all. There is no experience of universal healthcare in any Southern society. Nowhere. In India, cost of out-of-pocket payment is the highest in the world. People go into debt for medical care. That's the biggest indebtor in India. That's why healthcare in India is appalling. There's no public healthcare system. All we have is so-called volunteers, 100% women called ASHA workers. They are so-called hired by the Indian government. They are paid a stipend, not a wage. And they go door-to-door and provide healthcare in rural areas and to the working class. They are all women, 100%. And they are the most militant workers in our general strikes that we've had where 300 million workers have gone on strike. They are militant because they are the worst treated workers in the world. During COVID, they had to put plastic bags as gloves to go door to door and give, you know, health tests and things like that. There's no public health care system, no experience of it. Thanks, colonialism. Thanks a lot. You know, you leave us in 1947, you build in 45, 46 your own damn universal health care. You had two years to start the conversation. You didn't start any bloody conversation. You sent that jackass to draw a line, Radcliffe. Imagine that. As if the part, you know, people here say, we were talking the other day, you can't move people from north and south. In India, 13 million people moved in the subcontinent. One million died. I lost so many family members. They moved from the northern part of today's Pakistan into India. In, I have a grand uncle who was left behind because he was... He had had a nervous breakdown. was too scared to go. So they had to leave him behind and everybody left. You know, this is colonialism, guys. For us, it's not a historical fact. I'm not a resentful person. Or I don't feel angry, you know, for person. I mean, this is our living history. We still live this stuff. 
it's not an abstraction, you know. When, when I talk about it like this, I, I sometimes get worked up because it's a real thing. It's not a, I'm not talking to you because it's like somebody else's story. This is the shit we live in. You know, this is the work we have to do. So the Chinese decided, okay, we're going to do all this and we're going to slowly edge out of reliance on the United States. And then the left took control of the party. That was the arrival of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is on the left of the Communist Party of China. Now, you may have a debate, and I know people will debate, well, but is China even socialist? And blah, by the 95 million members in the Communist Party, okay? What's the population of Ireland total? North and South? That's not even a club in their party. That's not even a cell. 95 million members in that party. When I engage party members there, they say the range of opinion is incredible. There are people who are basically neoliberals. There are hardcore Maoists. It's a huge range. They squabble with each other all the time. When the Yanks say there's no democracy in China, I'm like, there's more democracy in the Communist Party of China than in your own bloody House of Representatives. You know, that House of Representatives doesn't sound to me representative of anything. You know, here there's enormous debates. It's basically a parliament. It has a different form of democracy. Like it or not, that's what it is. And if you think you can overthrow it, good luck, guys. Seriously, there's no Gorbachev in China, I can tell you. You know, the United States has been looking for years for Gorbachev. They can't find one. It's not happening. You know, they're just not happening. So Xi Jinping arrives and he announces the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the exporting of this strategy of creating a new way to break from the U.S. dominance, their satanic embrace. That was Belt and Road. That Belt and Road enters Europe. 17 European countries sign up for Belt and Road, including Italy, Poland, Poland, nowhere near socialist countries, signs up. Why? Because U.S. capital, Western capital is drying up. Chinese have an enormous surplus of capital. They are willing to invest it. They are out there for commerce. They are building an enormous commercial network across Eurasia. This is what we are calling the historical integration of Eurasia which had been blocked by the Cold War, blocked by colonialism, blocked by the humiliation of China 100 years, blocked by all kinds of things. Earlier, the Mongols had tried to build Eurasia, but they had a different attitude. (laughs) Theirs was the mountain of skulls attitude. The Chinese are not coming with a military. They're coming with cash in hand. And they start integrating. Secondly, the U.S. conducts these amazing wars. Iraq, Sanctioned hybrid war against Iran, war on Libya. Three of the most important energy sources for Europe get destroyed. And Europeans are sort of sleepwalking into Armageddon. You know, yeah, let's go bomb Libya. It's no problem. Let's, let's destroy Iran. No problem. These are your main energy sources. So that's what? That's 2006 sanctions on Iran. 2003 Iraq war. 2011 Libya. If you go and look and see how increasing dependence on Russian natural gas starts, it's in this period. Nord Stream 1 is built. Nord Stream 2 is built. 30% of German energy is basically from Russia. Increased dependence. This is the historical integration of Eurasia. United States was hell-bent on preventing this. And you read strategic documents in the U.S., they are terrified that Europe is being integrated away from the Atlantic into Eurasia. And that had to either be delayed or permanently blocked. The U.S. has understood long time ago, it actually cannot compete with China. 
because I don't have time to get into this. The Chinese have done something incredible. They have created better technology because they were smarter than the rest of the third world. When companies came and said, can we take advantage of your workers and Chinese workers, better fed, better educated, better public transport to get them to work, better everything. You know, you think firms can leave China, go to India crazy. Indian workers are unhealthy, malnutrition, falling ill, terrible public transport, late for work, no concentration at work because you haven't eaten that morning. Workers are not just numbers. 1.4 billion Indians, 1.4 billion. Worker has to have some capacity, has to have some knowledge of what's going on. Modern industrial and small scale work is not just you know, rote work, it requires an enormous amount of concentration, intelligence and so on. Speed ups and things require concentration. You need to have good physique for speed up. You need to have eyeglasses if your eyes have degenerated. Where in India is there eyeglasses? You travel in India and see how few people wear glasses. It's not that the genes are better, that they don't need glasses. It's because there's no (laughs) eye treatment for people. China said, you can use our labor, but you have to give us your technology. So all these French companies, German companies dying to use Chinese labor came and they said, you can build solar panels and here's the technology, but we want your labor. Within 10 years, Chinese companies were building better and cheaper solar panels than the Europeans. Cheaper, why? Because the profit margin is much less. They are not taking as much profit because they don't need to have you know, six houses, 12 islands that they own. You know, there are some Jeff Bezos type people in China, but not as many as you'd imagine. Not as many as, not in these sectors. These companies are able to sell, like Huawei, for instance, they have family that owns it, very rich. They live in the province of Taiwan. By the way, in the pub, there's a Taiwanese flag as you enter the door. Uh, so you actually have to sort of pay obedience to U.S. imperialism as you enter the pub, but that's another story. Uh, the company like Huawei, they make money, of course, but they make phones. When you travel in Africa, people don't buy Apple phones, they buy Huawei phones. They sometimes buy Samsung, but Huawei is the cheap. Chinese phones are the cheapest. How many of you have Chinese phones? Not that many, Okay. You're afraid that they will be snooping on you, I suppose. Uh, So the U.S. then starts to say they're going to interfere with your privacy. Remember that discourse? Can't allow Huawei to build 5G. Must get them out of the U.K. The British intelligence is very worried about this. Meanwhile, U.S. intelligence is snooping through. We know from NSA and the, you know, Edward Snowden that they're snooping on all our phones. We know that they even snooped on Chancellor Angela Merkel. It wasn't a Chinese, you know, but yet we believe it. Why? Because we are racists. We believe it's okay to have some U.S. snooping. That's acceptable. We can tolerate 20% U.S. snooping. But even 1% of Chinese snooping, that's horrible. Because how dare the Chinese, they are authoritarian. All these racist tropes of the yellow peril, you know, face it, guys. It's a lot of yellow peralism that's involved in this Chinese discourse. We just don't want to admit that the Chinese are actually people on the planet Earth who have a political project. We don't want to admit that. We're scared of the Chinese. What is this fear based on? It's not rational to me. The Chinese come to Europe and say, we're going to invest in things. Don't let them invest. Don't let them. But it's okay if the U.S. comes in and invests, builds. What do they build? They build airfields. They build an airfield at Shannon. 
from where they had extraordinary rendition, that great democratic program that the U.S., you know, had, where they democratically went and they democratically took people off the streets of Italy, democratically put them on a CIA plane, democratically brought them to Shannon, democratically refueled the plane, democratically took them to Guantanamo, and democratically ruined their lives. That's somehow acceptable. But if the Chinese come and say, I want to open a shop, oh, well, that's colonialism. It's amazing what we allow ourselves to think. And we don't want to talk to people about this because we're scared. Because of the overwhelming propaganda on this. And I'm not talking about Xinjiang. I'm just talking about a shop, a, a business, a phone. The phone in your hand. My God, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has better things to do than to read your text. <laughs> a lot better things to do. So we come to the Ukraine thing. And I, I, I'm going to end soon. I don't want to get into that very much. But that Ukraine thing, it's not only about um, NATO expansion. It's about this prevention of the historical integration of Eurasia. United States simply does not want to permit it. And the best evidence of this is on YouTube, you can watch an exchange between Jens Stoltenberg and Donald Trump, where Trump yells at Stoltenberg, who basically, because NATO is essentially a Trojan horse of the U.S. military. Although you might believe that NATO is an independent instrument, it's basically a U.S. front. He yells at Stoltenberg and he tells him, Listen, we are paying for your security, he says to him. But yet you are paying so much money to the Russians for energy. Why should we give you security if you are draining money out to the Russians? Why should you? Better that you buy energy from us. That means the United States, now think about the climate implications. Rather than piping gas through Nord Stream 1 and 2, let's liquefy the gas in New Orleans put it on a tanker, take it across the Atlantic, bring it to Hamburg to a non-existent LNG um, port, take it off the ship, bring it back into its gaseous state and then pipe it to people's homes. It's far better for the climate to do that than to just draw Russian natural gas directly. This is the thinking that has become completely normal. Far better to restart a nuclear power plant in Germany than to have a peace negotiation with the Russians. Russians don't want to negotiate because Putin is not reliable and he's a totalitarian dictator. By the way, the person who wrote the article saying rooting for Putin 15 years ago was Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. Uh, Putin is a creature of the Yeltsin years. He's not a creature of the KGB. In the early period of Putin's career, he was completely pro-American. Completely. 2007, in this period of change, he goes to the Munich Security Conference and he says something completely outrageous. Putin says, he gives a really interesting speech. He says, the planet should not have one single master. The planet should not have one single master. He says, that is an outrageous thing to say. That was the rudest thing he could have done. Come to Munich and say, the planet, he never named the master. He's a planet, and he was pilloried in the Western press. The image of Putin went from the day before that speech to the day after, from a great guy trying to do these great things, change Russia, blah, blah, to a complete different, now he's a dictator. It's amazing how media accounts can work. Suddenly he is a monster. It's interesting how the Yanks do this. Saddam is a monster. Gaddafi is a monster. Yesterday you were bloody giving Saddam chemical weapons to gas the Iranians and the Kurds. Now suddenly he's a monster. Yesterday you made a peace deal with Gaddafi. 
who paid for Sarkozy's re-election campaign and then suddenly he's a monster. Yesterday, you, the CIA was paying Manuel Noriega, president of Panama, to do their dirty work for him. Suddenly he's a monster. And we fall for it all the time. We never learn. We have like a mental amnesia. Their propaganda is so effective. Yesterday, Putin was a great guy trying to advance the democratic pro- Suddenly he's a dictator. And we fall for it completely. Be careful with this, you know. The other day I sent a tweet out, you know that Martin Niemöller thing, first they came for the communists, you know, and then they came for the this and, and so on. First they came for Gaddafi, then they came for, then they came for, I'm not saying, you know, Gaddafi was a great guy. I've been to Libya since 1974 as a kid. I know the country intimately. Lots of ins and outs, and I'll get to that in this last section. But be careful. When I did the tweet, I wrote, first they came for the communists, and I said, I am a communist. And we forget that. We say, no, no, it's not me, take the others. We say, yeah, yeah, let's go after Putin first. Where will you draw the line? It seems to me that people in the West in particular are saying, let's go after Putin, let's try to overthrow that government, then let's next overthrow the Chinese government, and then we can deal with climate change and establish You know, in April, Fiona Hill, who's a nasty piece of work, she's a British um, born, she was the chief of staff for Trump, worked for John Bolton. She published an article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs magazine where she reveals that in mid-April, the Russians and the Ukrainians had a peace deal. And basically the terms of the peace deal was mixed too. That was in April. The war starts in February, February 23rd, March, the whole month. And mid-April, no, sorry, early April. So that's about maybe six weeks of fighting. This was before Mariupol and so on. Six weeks of fighting. And then what happens? That great humanitarian shows up in Kiev, Boris Johnson. And he tells Vladimir Zelensky, no deal. Zelensky then goes on TV and says, we're not negotiating with the Russians. Now you tell me who doesn't want to negotiate. And you tell me who's not a reliable negotiator. The Iranians spent years negotiating a deal so that their people can eat and have health care. And then Trump just walks out of that deal. And people still say that, no, Putin is not a reliable person to negotiate with. The Yanks are reliable. What's wrong with our brains? Who's walked out of the most consequential you know, treaty which the European Union validated? Where was the government in Ireland? What did they say when the Yanks walked out of that deal? You know, you will complain about the Good Friday Agreement and you will torture yourselves. You can't walk out of that agreement. Meanwhile, the Yanks just walked out of the Iran deal wanting to destroy that government and the people of Iran. And nobody says a word. Where was the Irish government? Where was the UK government? UK government going on behind the US as usual. It's not even a government. It's a disgrace. Westminster is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. If not for one or two people that stand up and speak the truth, that's a disgrace. It's not a parliament. It's not a parliament. It's not a parliament because it doesn't stand for the rights of the people. It doesn't stand for... what. What is good for the British people? Do you want to also burn charcoal in your homes? Or are you going to fight to end this conflict in Ukraine? Your prime minister, I'm speaking now to the people from the UK, goes to Kiev and scuttles the peace deal. And there's no public comment on it. This is an article in Foreign Affairs. Which newspaper in the UK has reported this story? Who has asked this in any TV program? 
Look at this. Look at your media peers, whatever the hell his name is. And they'll then say, Russian TV is propaganda. It's fascinating how our brains work. Okay, last thing I'm going to tell you. I know I'm going on and on. I said I won't go on for more than an hour, but uh, <laughs> half an hour. It's, I don't know how long it's been. Sorry. <laughs> the last thing I want to say to try to bring this back to where we are as the people of the left and so on. About seven years ago, I went to a meeting in Brazil called the Dilemmas of Humanity, organized by the Landless Workers Movement. And at the meeting, there were lots of different political formations from around the South, from Africa, Asia, some from Europe, a couple from the United States. Uh, there was, I don't know if there's anybody from Canada. It was a really good discussion. We reassessed what had happened to the World Social Forum. The essential feeling was that it had done some good, but it had lost its way. Largely because it was an, it was a free-for-all. Anybody could go. The last few World Social Forums, 50% of the attendees came from the United States. Um, you know, because they could fly there. And people from, you know, India couldn't fly to Brazil. Uh, how many people can get the ticket? And those who did come, came at the help of foundations that were all in Western Europe and the United States. So they also picked the kind of people they wanted to bring. So mass organizations were not coming to the WSF. Besides, and this was the point I made, the slogan of the WSF was bullshit. Another world is possible. Even fucking fascism is possible. That's the most empty, useless slogan. I mean, why couldn't they have had the guts to say socialism is necessary? What do you mean another world is possible? We can't have politics like that, that are so, you know, open-ended and meaningless, really, in the end. We want a different world. Obviously, we want, everybody wants a different world. Even the plutocrats want a different world because they want more. So that's a meaningless slogan. And so we felt that let's do, try something different. So we started a process, we started a process called the International People's Assembly, which was to be a process where movements could come together to create international solidarity and a network. And now, seven years later, we have about 560 movements and political parties involved, including very large parties, the Communist Party of Nepal, Workers' Party of Tunisia, Democratic Party of, um, of uh, Morocco. Um, we have Portero from Italy. Not many from Europe, I should say, uh, for good reason. I mean... It's complicated, but Patria Grande from Argentina, uh, the landless workers movement of Brazil and so on. Well, it's hard work building internationalism. And it's, it's incredible because you, you, you know already that all politics is about trust. And particularly when movements have to build something with each other, they have to learn to trust each other. It takes a long time. And we have limited resources. You know, we can't, have a G7 meeting every year where the executive of the global bourgeoisie can fly to Wales, you know, stand together for a photograph and discuss intimate and important subjects amongst each other to coordinate, build trust and so on. We don't have the means for that. You know, it's difficult for our movements, uh, peasant movements and so on to do that. But it's so important that we build something like that. And I really want to welcome you into this process to think about it. Why do I want to welcome you into this process? We don't know enough about what our movements are doing in different parts of the world. Um, for instance, we don't have a feeling that the world really understood what happened with the farmers' strike in India. We feel that nobody really understood how farmers were able to be on strike for one year 
and defeat the government. A right-wing fascistic government. We feel that people don't understand how three, four hundred million Indian workers go on strike every year, one day, general strike. Don't have an understanding, how is that possible when there are just tens of millions of people in our unions? How do 300 million people go on strike? It's not understood. I don't think people understand enough how the landless workers movement has built a massive, massive settlement project where hundreds of families live on these settlements where they build, uh, they build homes, they, they grow agroecological food, they process their own food, they make grape juice and so on and they sell it through a cooperative structure, Amazon do Campo. We feel that these experiences are very important for each other to understand because we get strength from the experiments that other people are doing. Effectively, what I'm trying to say is that the reason we are operating the assembly is so that we can share the experiments with socialism. That we can come to understand that socialism is a form of experimentation. Socialism isn't just establishing something. I've had a very long relationship with the people of Cuba. 11 million people, by the way, maybe greater than the population of Ireland, but still a very small country. A country which is still quite a poor country. Very poor country, in fact. A country being throttled for years, that boa constrictor that tries to suffocate Cuba. And yet the Cuban people are constantly experimenting, trying to find new things. The last time I was in Havana, I visited the um, scientists who developed vaccines to talk about not the COVID vaccine, but the hepatitis vaccine. Because I don't know if you know that, but in Cuba, they have eradicated hepatitis. That's incredible for me because it's a really poor country. And in poor countries around the world, hepatitis is endemic. It's a serious problem. And Western medicine is no help for us because Western medicine designs medicines for the rich. We need medicines for the poor. And we need medicines for the poor that are cheap, effective, easy to deliver. Because you don't need to train people with highly skilled forms of delivery of medicines. You have to have a form of medical delivery where a person who's reasonably trained, village health professional, can go door to door and take care of people. We need to find ways immediately to train people. Of course, we want eventually to build clinics and have a better medical system. But initially, you need this. And on top of everything, we need political education. The Cubans are Jedi Knights of political education. But even they feel that there is vulnerabilities in Cuba. New generations are not receiving the kind of political education necessary. So we need to pioneer and experiment with each other, political education. What you do in left block is important, but who are you talking to? Are you talking to the landless workers movement who has a school called the National School of Florestan Fernandez where for years they have developed the Paulo Freire method of education. The hunger strikers in your age blocks were reading Paulo Freire. They started education classes in those striking places using a Brazilian text. They read the liberation theologists trying to understand what is political education. You can't build these things on your own world. You can't live on your island, think you have all the answers or you can develop the answers. You have to have an international perspective, not just so that you know things happening around the world. We need to be connected. We need to be connected. We need to talk to each other. Why? Because we have to experiment. And I want to put the word experiment before you. 
Experimenting is really important. Otherwise, socialism is demoralizing. You put a big bet on things, you don't do well, you feel demoralized. And I'm going to end with my great friend, Frederick Engels. I love Engels for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is, when Engels died, he didn't want to be buried. You know, he was cremated and his ashes were thrown in the that channel between Europe and uh, England. Uh, that's beautiful. Uh, I mean, I'm so opposed to making graves and shrines and so on, but I, of course, go to all of them. Marx's grave and, you know. Marx is different. He's in a different planet. Uh, but Freddie Engels lived an interesting life. But Engels, in 1859, said something really interesting. He was reviewing Marx's book, Contribution to a Political Economy. And, you know, he's a friend, by the way, because he reviewed that book in six different places. Uh, that's a friend, you know. He wrote six different reviews in six different journals uh, for Marx, who he loved deeply and admired. Uh, so, in that review, Engels said it's not true when you read the contribution to the critique where Marx says these are the phases of history, stages of history. It's not true that we are saying that history happens in a progressive single line. It's not true. It doesn't happen like that. History happens, he said, in zigs and zags. You advance, you get defeated, you go back, you get defeated, and it may not be you advance, you get defeated. Maybe you get defeated, you get defeated, you advance, you advance, but you're still going in zigs and zags. And that perspective was very useful for me, and it's very useful in political education, because we have to teach our comrades to lose as well as win. We have to teach ourselves that the loss is a place to reconfigure, think about the experiments we did, learn from them and come back. And come back. Because we can learn from that, yes, I know. But also sometimes when we say that to each other, it's not enough. We need a historical perspective for this. We advance, we move back, we advance again. It's zigs and zags, not a straight line. Because part of left politics is building confidence. And I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm really going to end with this, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that finding out what other people, sorry, finding out what other people are doing is incredibly good for the zigs and zags. Because when you're in a period of zag and you are able to study what the Indian workers are doing in that annual strike, it will lift your spirits. If you can go to your workers and tell them this is what they are doing, it will lift their spirits. A lot of our building the left is about building the confidence of the working class. The perspective we must take is our goal is to build the confidence of the working class. And the confidence will be built with this sense of historical destiny. There's nothing wrong with us being imbued with a sense of historical destiny as long as we understand the zigs and zags. You know, the Indian trade union movement, after a lot of great internal fighting, decided that it was important to fight back against neoliberalism with an annual strike. And the way the unions decided to do this was that they said that in our demand, when all the unions came together, right-wing unions, left-wing unions, in our demands, we will put at the center of our demands the demands of the unorganized sector. So the centerpiece of the demands is what the unorganized need. So if the vanguard of the working class, the organized sectors of the working class can lift up the issues of 
the most deprived sections of the working class, everybody will come out. This may have just been a cynical ploy to make, bring, but I actually think they believe this was how you strengthen the movement. And when you see the movement today, when the general strike takes place annually, it's a huge exercise of collective recovery of public life. When that takes place every year, there are large numbers of informal workers, women who work in the care economy, women who work in the healthcare sector, ASHA workers I had mentioned earlier, um, women who work in the hospital sector, they are in the forefront because their issues are in the forefront. It's not just what you were saying earlier that women are good at logistics. I 100% agree with you, which is why they come to the pickets and so on. But also it's not just they come for somebody else's issues. Their issues are at the forefront. And through huge struggle, the trade union movement did that. If we're going to capture power in the world, we can't just fight for our own interests. We have to fight for everybody's interests. We have to fight for everybody's interests. I learned this idea about having to think about zigzags, not only from Engels, and I'm going to come, I'm not going to quote that other man, but I'll quote from Lenin. Lenin had a really interesting statement. Lenin said, if you're too afraid to lose, you'll do nothing. If you're too afraid to lose, you'll do nothing. So comrades, be prepared to win. Thanks a lot.